All right, welcome to the Teaching That Counts podcast. As always, I'm the host, Abel Maeses. I'm an instructional coach at Series Unified School District. Today in this podcast, we are continuing our discussion of the Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics with, by Peter Lilladal. And I think today we are on chapter six and seven. So as always, I have a great group of teachers here with me. Um, to discuss the book, so I'll let them introduce themselves right now. I'm Grant McCormick, and I teach Integrated Math 1 at Central Valley High School. Diana Andrade, math teacher at Argus High School. Hello, I'm Elvis Ligado. I teach Integrated Math 1 and Computer Science at Curious High School. I'm Sarah Mutra, and I teach Accelerated Math 2 at CV. Hi, my name is Tucker Schwarberg, and I am a math teacher at Ceres High School. All right. Well, thank you again for joining me, guys. Um, and as always, I'm super excited to talk about this book. So what do you guys think about this particular chapter, where uh, and when and where and how the tasks are given? I'll go ahead and, and jump in. <clears throat> what I really liked about this chapter was uh, the recommendation to use verbal instructions um, when you're giving a task to really form a narrative and, and a construct a story when you're giving a task rather than um, the, the task either presented on the board or giving them a handout or a worksheet. There was some discussion on, on what the most effective manner was and um, they really highlighted you know, telling, telling the story and, and writing down pertinent information was, was the best way for, for students to engage and start thinking about a task most effectively. Yeah. I want to add to that. Um, so today I actually did one of the tasks with my students, uh, which is called, let me jump to the end of this chapter. Tax Collector. Tax we know collector. it's Tax Collector because we're in your room right yeah. now. And, and it's all over uh, my whiteboard. Yeah, it's all over the whiteboard. It's still up here. We've got all the money symbols and you can clearly see some of the thinking that was going on today so yeah and um so right before i i got started i something that caught my attention with this book was not only the task but like you got to get the attention of students and something that stood out to me is like you got to get the attention within five minutes and so that's what i told myself i have five minutes to get the attention of students and create a story that they are going to be hooked and be like i want to learn today i want to be part of today what's happening and so when I did the tax collector activity with students, I told them that it was my wife uh, had to take an exam, and this is one of the problems. And so it was introduced to them as, can I be better than Mr. Legado's wife uh, <laughs> and do better than what she got? Because we only got 22, and that was the lowest value you can potentially get, sort of. And, um, and my students were like, yeah, I think I can do better than his wife. And, and I can tell them, I want to prove my wife that you guys are smarter than she thinks, you know, because I always come and talk to you guys that you guys are often not doing your work. So we'll see what will happen. And they were engaged. They were doing the task. And I gave them 10 minutes to, to do the activity as best as they could. And then the, the last five minutes, I had two students who had the highest numbers to kind of explain what they did in the reasoning. And that worked out really nice. And I, I really liked this activity. And then we jumped into the class lesson. And they were working on notes and making sure they were writing this down. And they were hooked. That's what I liked about it. Yeah, if Mr. Salgado's wife is listening to this podcast, thank you so much for helping his class <laughs> be engaged today. 
I, uh, I did too, the tax collector problem on Tuesday uh, after our three-day weekend. Wanted to give them something non-curricular to kind of set the tone. And we've been really working hard at Argus on collaboration and collaborative strategies. So um, that's, I told them, like, you know, that was the whole purpose of what we did. Get them to think and get them to collaborate. So um, that is how I marked them for their participation was how are they engaging in their group. And they all did. They all did really well. So um, I agree that time to task is super important. I did have them come up um, in the middle of the classroom where we were, uh, where I was. So they were not sitting. They were standing up when I was uh, explaining it on the board to them and I uh, had them kind of throw out like what number would you want to pick first and of course they all said 12 and then I kind of let the rules evolve from there and then I just let them go to their own individual whiteboards and uh, work with a partner on them and they all did really good um, I kind of made it a competition so I had them like once they got one score it's like oh you know what nope that's not that's not good enough, so try again. So they wrote their score on the bottom corner, erased it, started over. And then as the groups got further, I would write the scores. Okay, somebody's got 36. Okay, somebody's got 41. And then finally, a couple of groups hit the 50. And then other groups were like, 50? And then so they were like really in the whole competition part of it. Um, I had several groups um, that I ended up throwing a 18 envelopes up there also and that was uh, really good I actually had one kid who I was so proud of because he was working on the 18 envelopes and the bell rang and he's like oh I'm not ready to go so I actually wrote him a tardy <laughs> note to his next class because oh, he was so into the the challenge so um, really good for you know thinking and collaboration low stakes as far as you know non-curricular they all knew factors. I didn't. I didn't have to explain any of that. So it was really, really good. I recommend it. Cool. Yeah, I I also was uh, able to do this uh, this non curricular task with a class and uh, same same experience. Um, I thought one of the most powerful things was was having them up, standing up, listening to the directions. And since then, uh, in the classroom that I've been working with the teacher, we've done that every single day. So every day ha starts off, they come in the class, and then attendance is taken, we hand out the cards, and then the task automatic, it's just, okay, everyone, let's get around here. Let's get around here and listen up, huddle up over here, and we can talk about the task. The part that struck me, I don't know, it's, it's a little scary, is the verbal, like doing the whole task verbally, uh, and in in the fact uh, FAQ part, he says that our research clearly, clearly showed that giving a task verbally and textually at the same time produces the same results as giving just the task textually. Um, we have a lot of EL students in our in our district in our schools, and so some some of that makes me worry about how much reading that they get to experience. Um, so I'm wondering when. When is the appropriate time to give them the textual piece, even if we start that verbal? Uh, I did see that the verbal and everyone standing really did get the students kind of going and thinking about what was going on. Um, and we've done that every day, and it's been, it's work, been working very well. I have to say one of the things that the teacher did that I thought was kind of a, a neat idea because 
some of the kids were still sitting down and they didn't want to come over and huddle is um, the teacher had them line up like, okay, line up right here so everyone's facing where we're going to talk about the task. So that forced everyone to stand up in a line. And I think that's kind of a good scaffold. I think later on I would like them to kind of huddle up and group up. But um, so far, uh, it's working pretty well. Yeah, I really do like starting the class off with everyone standing. Yeah, the part about uh, giving the directions verbally, that was just uh, created a visceral reaction to me. I, I didn't like that <laughs> when I first heard it. Um, really felt like this chapter, it started off where um, it talked about when to give the task. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's what I thought it would be. Um, how to give the task, I was like, oh, I didn't expect that, but that makes sense. I can do that. And then give the directions verbally. I'm like, what? What if you? What if they don't hear you the first time? How do you catch them up? But then, um, this this sample task here about the tax collector—it's it's very engaging. And there was um, a section in the beginning where he talks about how teachers are always asking him for tasks, and really what they want is good tasks that teach the curriculum. And I'm thinking, well, I don't really see how this fits into the curriculum, but we've been trying some non-curricular tasks just to build the uh, collaborative nature of the groups and. Um, and after reading this chapter, I was looking through our open up curriculum, and I really feel that there's, if you chunk it right, there's, you can make it a lot more informal in how you give the directions. And your task is to blank. If I look at the lessons that we have and, and think about how am I going to send them off with that, I really feel that I'm seeing a way forward in this. And even though I had a very, um, like I said, visceral reaction to starting this in the first place. Yeah, and, and on that, I um, once we get there, uh, Chapter 9 is going to show a bit on how to create a thinking task using the curricular, uh, using your curriculum. So you could uh, easily take whatever lesson and turn it into a thinking task uh, problem, which um, we'll get there. It's a really cool chapter on, on, uh, on what he calls flow. So I'm excited to, to get there. I, this book's, once you get kind of into it, you start to see how things are, things come together. So I did like the part about starting the task the first three to five minutes because as I moved into this year, I was thinking, I need to get these kids started right away. Um, we have a tardy issue at our school a little bit, so I'm, I'm feeling as though I need to start class right away so that way they feel like, oh, I got to get to class. Um, so I like the three to five minutes. The loosely clustered part is a little hard with the furniture in my room. And so our site has been talking about flexible seating. And so I'm hoping that with flex some type of flexible seating, it will be easier for the students and myself to, one, walk around, but two, to have the clustering at the beginning of class. I do still have some students that are not, not liking the whole... I have to stand the whole period. Oh, my legs are, oh, this. And I'm like, okay, well, do you even have a PE class? Like, let's <laughs> get around, move a little bit. Um, the other thing about this chapter, about giving the task verbally, I, and, and making it a narrative, I feel like I would struggle with that. The tax collector, they do a really nice job in the book of this is what you say and the script. But if I have to come up with that script myself, I don't think I'm that creative. Um, I hope that I'm engaging to my students, but I don't feel like I can come up with that script. So that's the one thing that I felt was something that would be challenging for me. 
Yeah, and just to go back to something that uh, that Grant had said about the curriculum, I think we saw today earlier there were some really cool s scripted story type context problems that you can really lead into a task um, in that curriculum. So I think that's an opportunity for us for that. In terms of the doing verbally, uh, I just want to go to one of the uh, FAQs he talks about. And the question here was, how do I distinguish between the parts that I should say and the parts that I should write? And he says an easy rule to follow is to say words and write numbers, symbols, and images. So that's got me thinking like a graph is something I would put up. Um, anything, mathematics, right? We have a lot of symbols, but things that are where he gives some examples, right? The speed of a bird, uh, four meters per second. Like those are the things you might want to write, but you really want to, like words or stories, you want to say that verbally and not, not, um, not give them a whole task. And I, I know sometimes when we look at the curriculum, there's a, this, it's just huge, like a lot of words on a paper. And sometimes that's intimidating. That, well, not sometimes. A lot of times that's intimidating. So I wonder if this is helpful to lower that intimidation feeling that some students have. I was, I was kind of with Sarah on the whole, well, I have students coming in late. How can I jump into a task and have kids coming in late? And they're not going to know what's going on. But I, I really liked how he answered that frequently asked question. He said, write the pertinent information so they can have some wherewithal of what's going on, what the information is, and then really have their group explain it to them, put some of that onus back on, on the students to explain what the situation is. And I thought that that was good because that would be annoying as a teacher. You, you know, you, you're you know, getting the ship, you know, the plane in the air, and then all of a sudden, after cruising altitude, you know, you have to get a passenger on board. <laughs> yeah. That would be, you know, That's annoying. That's a great analogy there, Tucker. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, too, I, I really liked how he transitioned from that verbal uh, explanation. I believe this was in the FAQ um, about, you know, how do, how do I get students to be able to decode? text because if we go to, to verbal and then all of a sudden they're on a high stakes test and they can't you know decode text how do they do that and then able to the point that you brought up with English learners how, you know how do we assist them in that and he made a, a good recommendation that you know you can eventually trans transition to this this isn't a blanket statement you know you don't have to 100% do this this provides the most efficient you know manner of, of thinking in a classroom but really like the last one third Back check me. Yeah, the last third of the year, you can start, you know, transition, giving them the text, and really scaffold that. What What do you think the pertinent information is here? You know, what What would you utilize? Um, so on and, and so forth. So. Yeah, I would see that. Um, I would think that maybe something, one of the math language routines of like three reads, would be something that would work really well with our students, um, or with any students, as we move along after they've been thinking for a long time. Good point. Um, another thing in the FAQs that I noticed was um, on page 112, it talks about only about 20% of the students need to understand the task and that the knowledge mobility takes care of the rest. I found that super interesting. And I'm using the vertical whiteboards in my room. I'm not necessarily using tasks right now. Um, I did for the first week, but as we're getting into um, factoring polynomials of higher degree, I'm noticing that my students aren't factoring completely. They're leaving a difference of two squares in their answer. 
but I'll have at least one group that factors completely. So I've been telling groups, okay, pick one person. They're going to be um, an investigator. They get to go around, look at all the other whiteboards, and then bring back that knowledge to your group. Um, and I feel like that's helped, but it is a little scary when I look at the whiteboards and I'm like, oh, my gosh, no one has it right. Like, But I just have to trust the knowledge mobility because I do start to hear students say, like, well, we should look at this person's board. Like, wait, they're doing something different. Or they start talking to the group next to them. And I know that they're supposed to be in groups of three, but I feel like that's good that they're asking their fellow classmates, how did you get this? Because we didn't get that. So it was, it's really nice to see them communicating and, and digging in. And it's, it's putting it back on the students, like you're saying. And so I'm just kind of observing. And I mean, I might give them a couple hints here and there, but for the most part, they're doing the work. I think that that's really good, though, in, in your class, Sarah, that students are clearly thinking. They're like, hey, I don't know if this is right. I feel like I should do something else because for so long in our, in our math classes, we see students just stop or not even try, or they just write something, and it, it can be complete rubbish. And they're like, yeah, like I, I think that's it because they're just clearly mimicking in that situation they're thinking, they arrive at their answer, and um, they want to know if it's right, you know, and, and then they're checking themselves, like, is that right? Do I need to go further, you know, and that's really great. Definitely, and I think the whole um, shift is getting them up, right? Because when you're sitting and you're writing something in a workbook or in a paper, it's easy just to sit there and not do anything or write rubbish and nobody even comes and looks at it. But when you're up and you're putting your work up, right, then that gives them more, um, you know, more power to look around and they don't feel like they're cheating if they look over there. there. And, you know, building that in is super important. But I think the, the game changer, the catalyst is definitely getting them up. Yeah. A after experiencing some of this, if doing those three, first three things is the, is the key to just starting everything. Um, all of this other stuff comes comes in and helps nicely. Um, one thing, as we transition to the next chapter, I wanted to point out in, in the FAQs, um, just to go with what Tucker was saying here, was that he talks about, oh, you know, uh, I, I, I teach my students how to do the task. What's wrong What's wrong with that? And he his reply is, is, really, the question is, what does it mean to be successful? Do we want that to be mimicking, which is what he says historically education in general was, was that if students can mimic, that was success? Or is it that students are thinking uh, and that we're creating and maintaining that thinking environment? So I thought that was pretty powerful. And then that kind of goes in, not only was that powerful, but I feel like it's a bit controversial in terms of like the way we take our, our um, what we've done for so long. And, and so in another controversial topic is Chapter 7. And I know this one has, has been around a lot in this district as we talk about grading for growth and, and how we grade students. And specifically, this topic was on homework. And, you know, there's, there's different sides to the, uh, the conversation on, you know, how important or how impactful homework can be. This does take a look at it in a thinking classroom. So I, I do, I'll start here. I know we probably have a lot to talk about on this. I'll start with uh, in the, the beginning 
when he talks about the issue, uh, he pretty much says right away, homework in its current institutionalized normative form is daily iterative practice to be done at home doesn't work. And so that's kind of how he starts the chapter off. But he goes into a pretty good uh, in-depth discussion on what the problem is, and why it doesn't work, and then how it should look in a thinking classroom, which uh, is, uh, is a bit scary. So we'll go in and start the discussion. Who wants to start? Tucker, OK. I'll go ahead and, and jump in on this one, because I have been a, a longtime proponent of homework. I have been banging the drum. Students need homework. They need to have an opportunity to practice what they've done. They need to have uh, the opportunity for extension of learning. And um, I've had some pushback, and I've, I've you know, still been a proponent of it. And even after finishing um, John Hattie's uh, Visible Learning for Mathematics, I saw effect size for high school, 0.55. We should be doing this practice. And then I read this chapter, and I was just like, whoa, this, this totally makes sense. I agree. I agree with the issue. I agree, you know, uh, students don't do it. Students cheat. Students definitely get help, you know, and then, you know, a small percentage. But I, I believe in that opportunity to help those students um, go forward. And um, the, the, uh, the book just really puts it in the frame that you're still providing that, that opportunity. Um, you just you don't grade it, and you, re, you retitle it. You know, it's an opportunity for students to check their understanding. I mean, students want to do well. Um, and so you still have that opportunity. Um, I mean, they frame it, you know, by by holding the carrot above their heads that it's part of their grades. You know, you have you do have more students do it, but not more students are actually doing it on their own. So you have kind of a, a negative correlation with with impact on student achievement by by having that. Versus if you make some small shifts, and I'll, I'll let the others talk about um, the small shifts that that make you know, the checking for understanding questions, um, effective for thinking that it's, it's much more meaningful than, you know, our, our traditional archaic homework. Yeah, I totally um, agree with that. I think you and I have probably been on some of the opposite sides of this issue in the last uh, year or so, and I think we might actually be on the same page now <laughs> with this chapter. I, I, love that you use the word opportunity he uses the word opportunity i find myself in the last couple of weeks trying to not use the word practice um he makes it a strong argument that when you say the word practice it really means mimicking and i think for a long time it really does um but you're I, you're completely right we need kids to be doing something to check their own understanding the part i think what thought was most powerful was who the homework was being done for. And uh, I just think, you know, sitting with my son, he was doing some work, and he was doing his homework. That was a lot of problems that he didn't really need to do so many problems. He, he could get it after a few. But he was doing it because uh, I told him to. And he was doing it because he needed to get uh, he needed to get his grade up. It was heavily weighted, and he needed to get his grade up because uh, when he goes to high school, they don't know, they can't tell what that grade really means. Even though he's got 100% on all the homework, on, on all the assessments, his homework is not there. 
And so if he has a C in the class or a D in the class and he's got 100% on test, the teacher, the ninth grade teacher doesn't see that. They only see a grade. So the, what's the reason he's doing this work? He's not doing it to learn. He's doing it for me. He's doing it for his teacher. He's doing it for next year. And so that's, I don't think that's where the power where Hattie's uh, effect size comes to play. If they're doing it for themselves and they're really checking their understanding, then that's where the homework becomes powerful. Um, the scary thing I found was is telling the students, here you go, here's the answers. Here's to check, check your understanding. I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to check it. I'm not even going to ask you about it. Um, but he's adamant in saying that, that once, you, once you change any of the things, this is the most sensitive to, to uh, what did he say? He said most sensitive to um, disruption. So uh, I, I really thought this chapter was powerful, and I, I really liked, I mean, I can't say this enough, changing the word practice to opportunity is, uh, I, I feel, is going to be a mental game changer. For the students. So I really liked this chapter and I really hate homework. I hate students doing homework. I give them opportunities in class to work on the homework, but as far as my end of grading the homework, I simply look for completeness. So the homework is not for me. It is for my students, but I do think that a lot of my students would um, agree with what the book is saying, how the students don't think it's for they think it's for me. Um, it's for the mark. It's for the grade. It's not about the learning. So I had a hard time because as I was reading this, I was also creating homework assignments and I didn't want to name them assignment 1.01, 1.02. But um, I am in a vertical PLC. And so I've already told my students that homework is worth 10% of their grade this semester. So I don't want to go back on that. Um, and I want to be in line with my vertical PLC because they're going to be expecting a similar experience for, from the next teacher as far as homework is concerned. So I think going into next year, having that conversation with my vertical PLC, saying, you know, this is something that I would like to try. It doesn't necessarily mean we need to be on the same page about it, but um, I do want to, you know, just give them check your understanding questions I also did like that they gave the um, the answers, but then they also gave the worked out um, answers. And so I did that for the homework assignments um, this time. So when I'm posting the assignment, I'm also posting just the answers. And then the next couple of days, I'll post the full solution set um, with the worked out examples. However, it's a little tricky with factoring because some of them, it just factors once. There's no real work to show. So I'm hoping as... Um, the, you know, units progress that it'll make a little more sense with the answer key and the worked out answers. Yeah, and to add to that, uh, I mean, homework is, I mean, it hits home for me when it when you start talking about homework. Um, and I think it's, it's going to be different for every individual. I know that going home for me was, I didn't get the support that I needed from my parents or, or anyone else. So either I did my homework or I didn't do my homework. And when I was reading this chapter, it's like, Dude, that is so true. Like, I would not do my homework because I had other things to do. Um, and if I tried to do it, I mean, I only did what I understood. And if I didn't get it, that was it. I tried not to cheat because I knew that I was cheating myself out of it. 
because it's like, if I don't get it, then what's the point? Because I'm going to fail the test either way. So might as well just do what I know. And um, I was going through the chapter, uh, something that kind of stood out for me a lot was, was the idea of how many students um, try to do it again for for the teacher and not necessarily for themselves. So it started making me thinking about the classes I teach, math and computer science. And in computer science, I do not allow any homework. I tell my students from day one, you guys don't have any homework here. There's no need for homework. Uh, everything we do is in class, but you do have general responses and you're gonna keep track of what you're learning and your, your progress. And I feel like that has been so much more helpful than students having to go home and try to do the problems with no support and instead of having someone here in class where they're like, well, am I doing this correctly? Or, you know what, this is where I learn and this is what I get. And they just kind of give me that journal and I read it and like, okay, they're on track or I see where they're having misconceptions too in a form of checking for understanding. I also want to add, um, I was talking to my wife about the, the whole cheating aspect and I asked her, is there a time when you cheated in high school? And she's like, well, there's times when I cheated when I didn't understand the material. I asked her, did you ever cheat on your homework? And she goes, well, I didn't do the homework because I also had things to do. But, like, what about your test? And so we started thinking about cheating in the classroom for a test. She goes, well, if I didn't know the concept, I wrote, like, small little notes. But sometimes it helped and sometimes it didn't help. And I, she asked me, like, did you ever try to cheat? I was like, ooh, that's a hard one. And I started thinking about it. There was probably one test that I felt like I needed to cheat because I did had not study or anything. But I wrote down things that were not even on the test. And did not even help me at all. So that was like the first and last time I figured that I would try to cheat because it's, what was the point of it? Yeah, it's just I wasted my time on trying to cheat and it didn't even help me. So, yeah. I, I think that kind of comes back to the notes. And have we talked about note-taking already or is that a chapter? I think we might be coming to that chapter soon. Oh, no, that's that's in chapter, I think, 10 or 11. Um, when we get Keep that in mind when we get to the note-taking issue because I think your story connects with students taking notes um i think it connects very well so well thank for you know i i think your wife has some sort of connection with uh with your teaching right <laughs> um this chapter there was a lot in it right and i think at the table i've probably been in education longer than some of you've been alive <laughs> <laughs> so i've kind of been through the whole gamut of assigning a bunch of problems and, you know, for homework and grading it and all the way to, like, you know, not assigning homework or assigning it and, you know, not marking it or marking it just for completion. So kind of been through the whole aspect of all of the different scenarios for me. You know, I I've did evolve to just a few problems, making sure they always had the answers to them. Students nowadays have so much technology handy where, you know, they can check their answers or even see how a problem has worked out, right? So um, they do have a lot of tools and a lot of them do know how to use them. Um, I think we do need to be mindful of the students who, you know, we want our students to be involved. Um, I was at a small high school for years, so, you know, they were involved in everything on campus. And I'm sure here at a larger high school, it's no different, um, you know, we're they're involved in multiple sports and multiple clubs so they are busy definitely and even have jobs so definitely need to be mindful of that but that balance has to be somewhere because we know we don't have enough time in our classrooms 
to do all the things we need to do for them to get to think and collaborate and struggle and check for understanding, you know, enough or practice enough. I want to say practice. I don't want to say practice. But, you know, do enough problems so they got it, right? So when do they do that? I guess that's kind of the struggle I still have. And I almost wonder, too, there's been a lot of, and I do know some teachers who do, like, the flipped model where the students do the pre-work before for homework, and then they come back, and then they spend a lot of time in the classroom uh, with that checking for understanding and getting clarification. So I just kind of wonder how the author would feel about that. And, and I don't know, does it change from an elementary classroom to an upper-level math classroom? Like, I, I think I remember discussing as the mathematics gets more complex, the importance for checking for understanding, <laughs> a.k.a. practice, uh, is more needed or needed at a higher level. So I'm not sure what everyone's thoughts are on that. Yeah, the research does show that there's a negative, there's a negative um, uh, effect of homework below third, third grade and below. Um, and then it starts to creep up every year until it gets to a positive effect in 11th and 12th grade. Ninth um, and 10th, it's still a bit more positive. It starts to get positive in, in junior high. But in the primary grades, it's, it could actually cause more problems than it can help um, because it starts to create anxiety in kids and it, it, it can be detrimental. So that's what the research shows, at least on homework. Um, I, 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 I mean, I agree with you. Uh, we, I actually ran a flipped classroom for years, and it started. This has started me thinking about, um, you know, how does that work with this? Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll send him an email and, and ask him <laughs> sometime. You know, hey Peter, what do you think about that? I guess for me, uh, where I'm struggling with this is, uh, man, not providing the feedback on the homework because if it's worth the time to do the extra practice, I want to make sure that they're doing it right and not reinforcing misconceptions. And because you know, mathematics ultimately is a language, and, and they need to have that conversation with me as far as I'm concerned uh, to make sure that they're they're getting to the the fluency with it, really. And um, but the the part that really stuck out to me is and it really felt like it was just a snapshot of my own students, was that section about the ones that got help. Because with the grading shift that we're going through in our district, there, there's, a, there's a huge equity issue in the students that have the support from home to get the help and the students that don't have that. And then, but even those students that are getting the help, if they're just getting help with getting the homework done, that's ultimately not what we're wanting either. We've been saying with our grading shift so much that the focus is uh, that the students are learning, not that they're just getting the points, getting away from awarding only points for things. And so then I'm thinking, well, yeah, maybe maybe the way that I'm using homework right now is, is not ultimately right. And I, I guess I'm, I'm really not sure what the path forward is, but I know that I'll be in conversation with all of you about those things, and we'll see if we can figure something out. Definitely. One thing that I did like about this was um, – they asked their students to discuss amongst themselves which of the checks for understanding questions they thought were the most important for them to do. I thought that, I, I think I might try that with my students 
it talks about that like this meta cognitive discussion had a significant impact on how many students did at least some of the questions but I also think it's kind of good for them to think about well which types of questions can I expect on the test or you know what are what patterns do I notice between all these problems or you know there's a lot of um, different questions that can arise and I think it's good to have students reflect on the assignment you know we're not supposed to say the word but the assignment <laughs> So one of the things um, about this chapter is that it starts to look at giving the students more power in um, their own learning, um, giving them that, that power to go, yes, I do need to check myself, and I'm going to do this for, my, for myself, for my learning as we move forward. And even though you're not going to have as many kids complete the uh, homework, they will, those that do complete it for the right reasons. So um, that gets into the discussion of um, autonomy and how we start to build that autonomy for students, which is what we're going to talk about in the next time we meet on chapters eight, fostering student autonomy. And then chapter nine, we'll talk about using hints and extensions and really looking at how do we turn a, uh, a lesson into a thinking classroom lessons. And just as I was thinking my last response there, I was thinking about a conversation you and I had able today during our release day about, um, about questioning. And, and when you ask a question, uh, the progression from uh, justify, explain, teach, and create. And I guess maybe where I really need to start is, am I asking the right questions in my check for understanding questions? Or are they... Um, very focused on the uh, surface level because that is ultimately when I give uh, homework I'm not giving them super difficult ones where like create your own problems but because I'm thinking about what can they do on their own the low DOK questions and maybe maybe that's where my focus needs to go all right that's that's a perfect segue into our ending here in looking at hints and extensions in chapter 9 and then as we move forward I believe in chapter 10 or 11 we talk about how do we get kids in that um, system of thinking? So thank you for joining me, guys. Um, great discussion. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us on this podcast. And we'll see you next time.